you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. I'm here for the serious brain bleed. Hi, guys. Chris Voss here from thechrisvossshow.com. The Chris Voss Show, or should I say the serious brain bleed? Who the hell wrote that script at the beginning? Oh, I think I know who it was. It was me. Anyway, guys, thanks for tuning in. We certainly appreciate you guys. Welcome to the Chris Voss Show. I'm your host. They tell me, it says they're on the placard, say that you are Chris Voss. So it must be me unless I'm impersonating myself. Can you impersonate yourself? I don't really know, but that's the ramble today, folks. We just make it up as we go along, and if it's funny, it's funny, and if it's not, well, sometimes when you die, it's funny rather than kill, as they say for comedians on stage. Today, we have an amazing author on the show. You, I know you didn't see that one coming because we have so many amazing authors. Put them in the Google machine, and, and they just come out the ticker tape there. Remember the ticker tape? Yeah. Just come out the ticker tape. That's what we run off on the Chris Vada show, running off of old-timey ticker tape things those of you the millennial and gen x generations you can google what the hell that is it's the newest thing on tiktok trust me today we have an amazing author on the show she is reverend angela denker she's on the show to talk to us about her amazing book red state christians understanding the voters who elected donald trump this came out in august 6 2019 but she has a new revised updated issue that she's going to be putting out in august or I'm sorry, August 6, 2019, this came out. And then I believe August 16th, 2022, it's going to come out. She's going to correct me if I'm wrong here in a second, which is probably what everyone should do because I'm wrong a lot. She is an amazing author and she is a Lutheran pastor and veteran journalist. She's written for many publications, including Sports Illustrated, The Washington Post, we love the WAPOs, The Fortune Magazine as well. She has appeared on CNN, BBC, and Sky News to share her research on politics and Christian nationalism in her in the U.S. Her book, Red State Christians, was the 2019 Silver Forward Indies Award winner for political and social science. She's the mother of two boys and lives with her husband, Ben. Why hasn't Ben here? I'm just kidding. In Minneapolis, welcome to the show. How are you, Angela? I'm great. I'm uh, I'm in Columbus, Ohio from Minneapolis. But other than that, I'm doing good. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, say hello to Ben. I always think it's funny when people put their family in the thing. He lives with his wife and two kids in, in Nantucket. And I'm always <laughs> like, well, I mean, if people are just like, damn it, I'm buying that book now. I'm just being funny. Anyway... <laughs> Welcome to the show. Give us your .com so people can find you on the interwebs, please. Yeah, easy. Just AngelaDenker.com, D-E-N-K-E-R. There you go. And what motivated you want to write this book? Yeah, so as I'm sure you hear from many authors, the book was information for a long time. You know, it draws on so many different experiences I had in my life, including previously I interned for a Republican congressman, worked as a journalist in covering sports. Sports, which sports overlaps with a lot of the topics that we're covering right now as well. But the immediate reason for the book came out of in 2016 and leading up to the 2016 election, I was pastor at a 
large Lutheran church in name, really evangelical in style church in Orange County, California. Oh, wow. Incidentally, in the hometown of Richard Nixon, oh, California. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, very conservative corner of Orange County and also very evangelical. And so I was watching the 2016 election and the buildup of popularity among evangelical Christians for Donald Trump from that position in the U.S. And initially I had pitched an entire book on Southern California Christianity. So many people assume that Southern California is entirely liberal, but there are huge pockets of conservative Christianity in Southern California, particularly Orange County. And you see that as you look at Trump's administration and even a lot of the leadership among prominent evangelicals, a lot of them tend to come from Orange County, center Mm -hmm. of wealth, power, Anyway, so I first pitched a book called Bibles and Boob Jobs entirely <laughs> for California. And, you know, I, people tell me, they're like, you should have stuck with that title. <laughs> that, that's a great title. I lived in Whittier and spent okay. a lot of time in Orange County. And, yeah, okay. that and that and lip, lip injections. So, yeah. 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 Not yeah, for me personally, but, yeah. <laughs> you should try and look at it. There's still time. <laughs> so... In that, I should say that that title did survive as a chapter title. So I have a, a chapter <laughs> in title, Bibles and Boob Jobs, which is great. Isn't, uh, isn't that one radio station guy who's very toxic, who uh, helped to give rise to Stephen Miller? Isn't he from Orange County? I yeah. Forget. yeah. He I just recently ran for governor. At least Southern California. Yeah, I'm not. Yeah. I think, yeah. Yes. yeah Elder? Larry. Larry Elder, yeah. Larry Elder, there you yeah. go, yeah. Yes. There was a book that someone did, it, it escapes me right now, on Stephen Miller, and I was surprised, that's when I learned about Larry Elder, and I was like, mm-hmm. holy crap! And, uh, yeah, it's amazing. Stephen Miller being from Santa Monica, too, you know. There you go, there uh, you go. Mr. Goebbels no, himself. <laughs> so I submitted the, the book idea and the publisher came back to me that they had been wanting to do this book, Red State Christians. And they really wanted, you know, as you mentioned before the show, there's been so much coverage of this topic from different authors. I think the, the niche that my book wanted to fill was that it also brings a theological and a pastoral perspective to the topic, which we, we hear a lot from historians, from sociologists. And I also wanted to address the theological and the pastoral And the pastoral really involved me getting to have the opportunity to travel across the country in 2018 and really, you know, talk to people whose voices often weren't being heard. So those were the two elements that I wanted to bring to the book. And of course, since it came out in 2019, our entire world has just continued to change and shift on its axis. So I'm really grateful for the opportunity to have this revised edition. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize it. And I think it's great that you're bringing it from a perspective of, you know, calling from inside the building. We've had a number of authors that I think most of the authors that we had were religious. I know Robert P. Jones from PRI was on the show. Mm-hmm. He's a, a devout a Baptist. I, I, I'm not sure if he's Southern Baptist or Baptist by nature. But I mean, you know, people that are calling from inside the building to go, hey, the building's on fire and uh, we need to fix our house sort of thing. And so I think it's I think it's great that's perspective out of there. You know, I we recently saw your book's really topical again too because we recently saw kind of this Christian nationalism thing pop up. And you know, it was, it was kind of interesting to me. I, I can't remember who made the who made the meme, but it, a meme meme circulated recently, and it was it was that one toxic gal. Is it what's her name, Marjorie? Hmm. Marjorie Taylor Green. 
Yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene. I, I've tried, I guess I've tried to block her name out of my mind and a couple other, but you know, announcing, yeah, you know, we are Christian nationals. And uh, somebody put out a meme recently where they interwove the David Duke's stuff that David Duke said. You know, I remember uh, from uh, being younger, interwove that with some of the stuff that uh, Republicans are saying. And I'm like, holy crap, you know, and I mean, these are people that are hardcore KKK and now it's just mainstream and you see the doubling down of that. You know, I remember the day after Trump was elected, I sat down and I was like, I need to fight for what the hell is going on. And uh, I, you know, I started reading I, like white nationalism came up and I was like, what's a white nationalist? And uh, I started you know, seeing all the stuff that was there. And I've just been amazed at how, how much undercurrent there was that led to this. So let's talk about the book and, and some of the stuff that you have in it and, and your perspective. Yeah. So Christian nationalism is how the book begins. The first chapter takes place in Plano, Texas at Prestonwood Baptist Church on 4th of July weekend. Hmm. And I went there. It was actually not on my initial list of places I was going to go that particular church. But when I had gone to the March for Life in Washington, D.C. in January of 2018, I met with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention, headed up by Russell Moore. And I was told by several members of that commission, they said, if you want to understand Christian nationalism, which they were calling it, even at that time, you know, this is four years ago, they were calling it a gospel distortion meaning that wow. the the power of Christian nationalism for them within the Southern Baptist Convention, for me as a pastor who's not Southern Baptist, this goes beyond the SBC to, you know, every corner of American Christianity, even those that consider themselves liberal. We've been, we've so bought into Christian nationalism, this idea of America being the promised land, this idea of Jesus being an American savior, Jesus sort of as an element of the American military, it's become so powerful that it's distorted the gospel and it's changed the gospel. So for me as a person of faith, you know, that's, that's the biggest worry beyond, you know, what it's doing in our country, beyond what it's doing to democracy. It's, it's distorting the gospel. It's distorting the mission of Jesus. So I, I went there, I reported on what was happening there, and really what's significant for me is that the idea of Christian nationalism has its roots in theology, mm. and it lifts up something that's much older than America. It lifts up this idea of a theology of glory that first began to creep into Christianity in AD 300, back oh, wow. when Roman Emperor Constantine, on his deathbed, converted to Christianity, and suddenly the most powerful empire in the world became Christian. And so Christianity went from being this persecuted religion to being aligned with empire. Um, and so you can see the way that manifests itself in Christian nationalism in the U.S. is, and I think what Trump did that was that was so powerful and had not been done before, is he sort of unified these two distinct wings of, of American Christianity, probably the two largest wings outside Catholicism, and it's both are within Catholicism. Catholicism as well, he unified this wing that was very sort of God and country, patriotic, the military, sort of this sense, again, of military sacrifice being akin to Jesus' sacrifice. He unified wow. that wing with more of a global prosperity gospel, which suggests that if you follow Jesus, if you are a Christian, you are entitled to money and power and wealth. And what wow. we've done in America, and this is, you know, where the book has kind of gone in this new revised edition, is that both of those two things are inextricably connected to whiteness. 
and to white nationalism and to white Christian nationalism. And for me, being in Minneapolis, just six miles from where George Floyd was killed, that's really been a journey that I've gone through over the last three years to connect those two pieces more powerfully. Wow. So how much, how much went into, you know, we saw what he was kind of doing in the, you know, the lead up to the election and, and in seeing, you know, him portray himself as, as almost a Jesus figure and, and people, people buying into it. And then of course you had, who was the, he, he was embraced by, I think it was Franklin. Franklin Graham. Yeah. Franklin Graham and a bunch of, you know, these, these cronyisms. And, and I think Obama had seen, some of the issues that were coming up with, with, you know, I've seen it since where I've watched, where I've seen, you know, people preaching from the pulpit and they're not preaching religion. They're preaching politics. Yeah. And you're just like, wait, this is a, I don't see any Jesus stuff going on here. This is just, you're just doing politics and you're getting a tax write off for it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I mean, we're, We've we've neglected the cross. You know, American Christians have put aside the cross. And it's interesting if you go into a lot of these, you know, more modern church buildings, you don't see the cross anymore, just visually. You really you, you don't see crosses very often. And what we've done is we've sort of neglected to teach the reality of the crucifixion that Jesus really died. You know, it wasn't some idealistic thing, it wasn't some imaginary symbolic death. Jesus really died. Mm-hmm. And because we've ignored that for so long, we've created generations of Christians who think that following Jesus, being a Christian, is just sort of about ascribing to a sort of white middle class American life, which necessitates subjugation of anyone who doesn't kind of fit into that box. Yeah, the subjugation part is the is the is the part that always bugs me the most because it's not about you know, I remember, I think it was when Robert Jones was on the show. Mm-hmm. I said to him, I said, you know, I'm an atheist. Mm-hmm. And, but I believe everyone, sh- you know, I, I get people need to have something to go through this life to hold on to. And, but, but the problem that I see with Christian nationalism is it's, it's very, it's, it's, it's kind of like the dark ages where you be- you'll believe in us or die. What's the, what was that thing that they did where if you didn't accept because you, they just kill you or they kill you anyway, I think yeah. you'd. And it's very much like that. Like, I wouldn't have a problem if you want to put Ten Commandments on a courtroom steps. I mean, there kind of a problem with the Constitution. But technically, I wouldn't have a problem with it if you put everybody else's on there. You know, the pagan people and, the, you know, the Jewish people. And, the, you know, if everyone's representative, then great, as long as we can have everything. But the problem with the, the Christian nationalism is they, 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 they want theirs and no one else's. And everybody else will bend a knee or, you know, fall to the sword to them. It seems to be their attitude. Do I have that correct? Yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, if we look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, there's there's none of that in Jesus' life. You know, Jesus yeah. was meeting with Samaritans. He was lifting up people from all different types of ethnic and religious groups. And ultimately, like for me as a Lutheran, you know, we are saved not by what we do. Mm. Or even not by what we believe. We're really saved by Jesus. But Christian nationalism betrays itself to a sort of a sort of earned righteousness, which then helps people to feel that they have the right to, you know, exclude other people. And we see that we see this bleeding into, you know, recent Supreme Court decisions that have Christian nationalist underpinnings. We do see it happening, you know, 
across this country. And it's especially troubling when the U.S. was really founded on this idea of religious freedom. And unlike, again, there's been this revision of history where you'll hear in the churches I went to for the book, you would hear over and over again that, you know, our founders put into these documents that we were to have a Christian nation. And that just wasn't the case. <laughs> but it's amazing it, how many people I meet. And I'm like, hey, you go, the Constitution is this. I'm like, when's the last time you read the Constitution? Yeah. And I even sat down a couple of years ago and, and read the Constitution. I think it was right before the Biden election and read the Constitution and passed copies out to friends for Christmas gifts. And it, it's amazing. And we've had a number of authors on the show that, that, you know, talk about the origin of the original lie. You know, the person who did the shining on the, the, the city on the shining hill lie. And then, you know, Reagan hijacked it. And we've kind of seen this escalation of Christian nationalism rising ever since. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And he, so is it getting worse in your opinion? I mean, we seem to be still just escalating. I mean, you know, we reached this point where, you know, they, they overturn abortion and now they're after contraception. And I mean, they just, they're just like avenging angel sort of attitude of like, let's, uh, we want full control of everything there. You know, you see Victor Orban, you know, complete fascism. If you, if you study the rise of fascism and authoritarianism, it usually always comes from right wing religion and control seizing by violence usually. Yeah. And as you, when you mention Orban, that's why I always want those of us who are in America to, to expand our understanding of, yes, this is right now a phenomenon that's happening in the GOP. It's happening in the U.S. It's, it's focused around the flag and around America, but really this is a global phenomenon. And again, it is a phenomenon that goes back to the Roman empire, goes back to this wow. time when Christianity became intertwined with violence. Um, mm -hmm. But it's it's definitely getting worse. I mean, I I entered into the travels for this book in 2018, and you can see it. My subtitle changed. So the initial subtitle of the book, which I had wanted, "Meet the Voters Who Elected Donald Trump," they changed it to "Understanding the Voters Who Elected Donald Trump." I don't, you know, I don't know. I think sometimes there's no understanding. Sometimes it's just meeting people. Wow. <laughs> but you know, I went into that with a really open heart. I mean, I come from a family of, you know, particularly on my in-law side, you know, people who are big supporters of Trump, people who go to Trump rallies. My church where I pastor right now is located in a county where two thirds of people voted for Trump in 2020. So when I was writing about all these ideas and people, you know, I was writing about people that are close to me, people that are closer to my heart. Um, and I was hopeful at that time, you know, that, that we'd be able to back away from this a little bit, that, you know, Trump is, is such an opportunist, right? And I always kind of fault these evangelical pastors and Christians in leadership more than I do Trump. You know, he kind of latched onto it, but they're the ones who laid the groundwork and betrayed the. Oh yeah. Place. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, uh, you 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 in the 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 most extraordinary thing to me, you know, I'm an atheist. I mean, I read the Bible when I was a kid. I you know, I when I when I like, should I be a good person or bad person? Like, yeah, I should probably be like Jesus, be a good person. You know, I, I still, I, I think it's a good advice. And and to see that, you know, Joe Biden, President Joe Biden is a, is a, I guess he's a Roman Catholic. He regularly goes to church. I, I think Trump showed up to church, what, like three times or something during his thing. And that was usually to get some votes or 
bring some whatever, you know, promotion, you know, and, and here, you know, and, and he, and Biden's been a devout Catholic, I think all, or yeah, Catholic all of his life, you know, to, to have them treat him horribly and, and, and tout this philanderer, you know, guy who's, I don't know, he's clearly hijacked the thing, the movement and is manipulating it. And the fact they can't see that, or I don't know, there's just, money that they see being made because that's what i see a lot of the pastors uh, a lot of the money changers you know jesus threw the money changers out of the temple a lot of the money changers you see that were the the big money who brought him up that guy who got kicked out of the college and was having an affair i think or some other stuff was going on you know turn he was the guy who was the first i think big preacher to give trump the an endorsement and that was because he needed some pictures hidden to my understanding or reporting yeah, it's follow the money, right? Follow yeah, the money. follow the money. Yeah. And again, you know, looking at Jesus' arrest and death, it was the partnering of the religious leadership of his time with the government leaders of Rome that ended up crucifying Jesus. And so wow. I think we have to really be careful whenever we see a partnership between religious leadership and governmental leadership. And, you know, Democrats aren't immune to that, mm-hmm. but it's certainly, you know, the violence. So when you ask when I've, be- if I've become less hopeful, you know, between COVID and just watching COVID explode and expose the fallacy of the pro-life movement. Um, mm-hmm. I lost, I lost a brother-in-law at age 43. I'm sorry. Um, he was unvaccinated, you know, because of his, he, he believed what he was told from wow. right-wing leadership. And so for those same people to turn around and claim, you know, we really care about life mm-hmm. when they called for the death of hundreds of thousands of Americans in order to lift up the economy, um, you know, that that just shot a arrow through my hopefulness because I'm, I'm ultimately a hopeful person. You know, you kind of have to be to be a, a pastor and to be a mom, to, to be a wife. Um, mm-hmm. But that and then to you know, feel some hopefulness around some of the racial reckoning after George Floyd, but then to see how quickly that turned into a backlash, how quickly this exposing of justice for Black people in this country was turned upside down of people claiming, you know, there's riots and there was no acknowledgement of the reason why these protests were happening. And then finally, the insurrection, you know, Mm -hmm. and to, to see, you know, months later, just the the steadfastness of the hold that this movement has on people and mm-hmm. has on has on good people, you know, it's 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 rough. Yeah, and it's 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 amazing how deep they go. Do you get any any of the craziness of it? You know, I've I've seen so many interviews at Trump rallies, and you know, between QAnon and just like just crazy stuff that they'll believe it's like it seems like there's no end or no bottom to how far they'll go you know i've i've heard some people saying john f kennedy and his son are running the government (laughs) and i just just like what the hell i mean everyone knows it's really nixon that's running the government (laughs) that's a joke people don't take that seriously and start a cult thank you Somebody will watch out. So, is there, is there was there in, in delving in meeting all these people? Was there any sort of psyche or 
Is it, you know, what's what's the core? What gets you off the rails to buying this? Are people just used to trusting a pastor and so they run with it? You know, one of my favorite things to do for a while there was watching, of course, the Southern Poverty Law Center and the, the growing hate thing, the monitor they had, but also right wing, right wing watch. They normally would see the videos on Facebook and they would post, you know, these clips of pastors you know, saying all the stuff and running politics from the thing. And of course, anti-COVID stuff, et cetera, et cetera. Is, the, is there a psychological makeup or is there a reason these people are turned? Uh, what is there? Is there some sort of consistent core? I mean, I think that, you know, the psychology is probably above my pay grade. Um, but what I would say is that I see for so many, there's a deep insecurity. There's a deep way in which the American economy has failed so many Americans, particularly American families, a lot of rural Americans. And this has left people with a lot of insecurity, particularly white people, right? And so the answer to this insecurity, it's it's very hard for people who are insecure to admit where they've been wrong because mm-hmm. it feels like if I let go of this little piece, then I'm mm-hmm. gonna lose everything. Mm-hmm. And everything's going to be gone. And what I remember when I was beginning to do this reporting on Christian nationalism and speaking with folks from the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the SBC, what they were telling me is that when people let go of of Christian nationalism, when they attempt to sort of separate out and say, you know what, um, this this idea that the 4th of July is our high holy day, you know, that's actually not it. We're going to go back to Easter. We're going to go back to Christmas what they said happens is people lose their faith. They mm. drop their faith. And I think what we're starting to see too, and I was actually seeing this in an interesting corner of the internet when it comes to sort of this merging of like wellness culture, essential oils, yoga culture, and, you know, anti-vax movement and how it's kind of moved these left-wing hippies with the right wing. What you're starting to see is people are dropping the religious aspects of it and they're just holding on to these cultural moments, you know, and I think that's where it leads, you know, and I'm, I'm a Lutheran, I'm of almost entirely German descent. And we got to be real careful. (laughs) Because this is what happened in Nazi Germany. And I'm not saying we're going there in the US. But what happened is that the majority churches in Germany ended up signing an oath to say they're going to support Hitler and the German nation. It was all about German pride bringing, you know, make Germany great again, for lack of a better term, after a, after a national recession. And they had so obliterated the teaching of Jesus that it was real easy to just kind of sub in Germany for God. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, we're right on that edge here. We definitely are. And, and I think you nailed it on the head. You know, it, it, when I was 18, 20, they started talking about the dissolving of the middle class. Mm-hmm. And it was the 80s and trickle-down mm-hmm. economics. Mm-hmm. And uh, that really started destroying the middle class. And, of course, Reagan's war on unions and the backbone mm-hmm. of American mm-hmm. society. And then, you know, we see these areas turn into rust belts. But no one blames the GOP, which is kind of interesting. Well, I mean, there's people that do, but the people who vote, 
They always seem to vote against their best interests. Hey, let's vote against the people who shouldn't put a cap on insulin. Let's do that. Let's vote against the people who don't vote against uh, policies to not raise gas prices or, or price gouge. But there you go, because they're cloaked usually in religion. But I, I do agree with you. The d- dissolving of the middle class, I think, is the proponent before it. And when people get desperate, when they lose you know, their ability to you know have a picket fence in the car, in the two-car garage, and what's that line from from the movie network, you know, just giving my tires and my lazy way recliner. Let me watch my TV and just leave me alone, man, for five seconds so I can have some peace basically. And, and, and then it dissolves from there. The more desperate we get, the more crazy things get. You saw that, like you mentioned in Hitler, Ruth Ben Gates been on the show a couple of times. She wrote a great book called strongman and she profiled the, the rise of the right wing takeovers of any government, Duterte, the names of Chile escaped me. Everything's escaped me at this point. But any any one of these governments, like you mentioned earlier, use religion to keep going. Even Putin is is, you know, allied with the with the or- Russian Orthodox Church and and a, and a, and a billionaire <laughs> billionaire pastor there you know the all these guys use that as a way and a lot of times they can't get away with it without having that endorsement and that's what's really scary it is really interesting what you said to me because i've watched the the dissolving of of religious power in america and less less and less people claiming that they're religious but then you you mentioned the giving rise to the other mysticism stuff like essential oils and Mm -hmm. And all sorts of other sort of fantastical things. I'm sorry if you fantastical or central oils are great, but once you start going mysticism and, you know, I see more people, you know, with rocks and, you know, crystals and, you know, uh, everything else. Me, I worship coffee. So that's probably, probably demented, but it, it makes me feel good. And if there's a heaven, I hope coffee's there. I don't know. That's my new shirt. It's a new, that's the new thing of the show. But you bring up a good point. And then one thing that I was really surprised by was the terror that I saw in people's eyes that, that you know, the, there was the prospective thing that in 2050, white people would become a minority. And I really didn't think it was that big of a deal because you can't stop what's coming. It's the old line from New Country Full of Men, one of my favorite lines. You can't stop what's coming. That's vanity. But to see interviews of Trump voters and GOP voters who talked about that and they were really alarmed there. And, and some of them I heard say they're going to do us to us, what we did to them for 450 years of this country of ugliness that we did to slavery and Indian it's, or, uh, I'm sorry, American Americans, you know, it, it, it's, it's to see how much they worried about that. And of course, immigration, they, you know, they're like, they'll come here and they'll breathe off kids and then they'll vote us the loss of power and the extraordinary grab for, a dying power, if you will, you know, just all that put together. Sorry, that's a lot of information to pack into one place. Yeah, I mean, it's, um, and it's, again, you know, race is the elephant in the room, right? Because when we talk about economic anxiety for white Americans, you know, we ignore the fact that most black Americans, many Americans of color have never had the same opportunities to be a part of the middle class as white Americans have. And again, it's, it's like, you know, I will say when I was growing up, I probably subscribed to some of these things that sound real, like they, they sound real innocuous on the outset. You know, when, when people wouldn't get into a college, they wanted to, they, oh, it's affirmative action, you know. Well, no, it's not. And yeah. it, this is an economic critique as well. And it's sort of been the people in this country that hold 
the power and the wealth, which has become increasingly concentrated in the hands of very few people. It's like, oh, look over here. Look at this. Look at this American Indian student who's getting a scholarship. Don't look over here to the 80% of legacy students whose parents went here, who's donated money to the campus, who are going there for that yeah. reason. Yeah. So I think it's, it's, it's such an easy thing to do. And it's easy to want to say, well, I'm going to feel better if I can just say, well, I'm still better than this person. And I think it's, it's really painful, but I don't believe that, you know, we experience resurrection without repentance. We don't experience resurrection without death. And so, um, there's got to be a lot of that surfaced right now. And I think we're experiencing it and, you know, it's much less painful on the other side to, to realize that we live in a country that looks different and that is a good thing. You know, I don't want to go back to the 1950s, but a lot of people do. <laughs> yeah. And there's this fantasy that it was a much better time. And it, it really wasn't for a lot of different reasons, but there's this fantasy of that, you know, the two car garage and the picket fence and the vacation, the two weeks vacation stuff. And, and you're right. There's a lot of the rich get richer than poor get poorer. I, I, I came of age and graduated high school during the Ivan Bielski era and, you know, greed is good. And when wall street started going, Hey, if we fire mass amounts of people, the stock goes up, push this button here. And, you know, the robber barons, basically, the Michael Milton's, and, and it was really interesting. And a lot of this plays into and is intertwined with the collapse of, of our societies. Do you see a lot of religions fighting back yet? Are, are people standing up and saying no and, and we're done with this and get out of our, get out of our, you know, uh, Yeah, I mean, I do see that. I don't think it gets a lot of play, you know, it mm. doesn't. The stories about the, the, there's a lot of sort of treating, you know, Christians as zoo animals in national media a lot of times. And like, look at this crazy, you know, they'll go find the craziest thing they can find happening. Um, I do think there, there are certainly people pushing back. There's Christians against Christian nationalism. There's groups of clergy that I'm a part of who are constantly working and looking to lift up other gospels. But prominently, I mean, I think we also need to look back to history. You know, history can give us all these examples of places where where people have prioritized idolatry of wealth or power over God. But even in this country, you know, the civil rights movement was a movement that was championed primarily by Black Christians and mm -hmm. by Black Christian leaders. Not, not entirely, right? But but a lot of movement among black Christians who use the words of the Bible, who use the story of Jesus to remind us that the, the movement of Jesus has to be one that lifts up the marginalized, that sets the oppressed free. These are the words of Jesus. Mm -hmm. And we have, you know, anti-poverty movements in this country. So there are places to look and to see there's, you know, people doing work in immigration, people doing work with refugees. So I think there, there are places to see that. Um, but it's, it's certainly an uphill battle. It definitely is. What's even surprising to me recently has been the, has been the Hispanics folks have moved from, I think, Catholicism to Protestantism largely, and they're moving and becoming and going to the GOP, which really shocked me. But I don't know, maybe I shouldn't be surprised. 
I have a I have a chapter on Latino Christians in in the book. I went to El Paso and really dove into border issues and also walked across the border to Juarez, Mexico. And I think that there's been too much paternalism on the part of white Democrats. Mm-hmm. And there's been some tokenism. I think there needs to be really a desire to listen more to people on the ground. One thing that I wanted to do in my own reporting is I think it's really important to listen to people who who are the minority political voice where they mm-hmm. live, you know, and people who are really doing work on the ground and also people who exist in multiple camps. So, of course, you know, we haven't missed the nuance in some of these stories. And, you know, there is a hopefulness on the part of recent immigrants in the American dream. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Democrats have always done a good job of articulating what the American dream looks like for Democrats. I think that could be helpful. And our, and our left wing is really, I'm a, I'm a moderate Democrat. Our left wing is really extreme and very anti-family. Mm-hmm. I think that drives the Hispanics away. It's, we be, the, the woke culture in our, in our left wing has re, is really anti-family. And, and I think it's been very destructive and, and it paints the party very ugly. I try to pull as many people as I can towards the middle of democracy. And there was probably a time you could call me a liberal before I, I really understood how, how toxic the woke culture had gotten. And I, I think that's what's drive my theory. It's a theory is, is one of the big things that's driving Hispanics away because Hispanics are largely familiar, very family oriented people. At least I, I, I think they are. Everyone I've ever met, I mean, they, they have huge families. They, 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 you know, they, they love their families. The, the other thing that's interesting to me, I had someone speak to this on the show that I didn't fully understand because I was really confused. You know, the Cubans voting for Trump and, and mm-hmm. stuff. Uh, and I was like, what's going on there? And they referred to it as the slam the door behind you policy. And I'm like, what is that about? And they're like, well, when Mexican Hispanic people come here, they, you know, they get the goods and they become like Americans where they go, hey, you know, we, we did come across the border illegally. We got our citizenship now, but slam the door behind you because we, we want more for us. And I'm like, wow, I never heard of the close the door behind you policy of, of how, you know, or this mental attitude where, you know, well, I, I got in, but you know, screw those other people. And to be, we basically turn them into Americans, I guess, when it really comes down to it, the ugly asshole Americans, I guess, but it's, it's extraordinary to me. And I think I noticed that, you know, in a lot of different, I mean, I definitely heard that from folks I talked to in El Paso, but I think I noticed Mm -hmm. that in a lot of different contexts, particularly among people who have been part of marginalized groups. So even for me as a woman, like you'll experience that with women, you know, women who have so-called made it and then slam the door behind them, you know, I'm going to make it hard for the next woman who's coming up behind me. And I think it, it stems from, you know, maybe you called it internalized oppression. Maybe you, maybe you think of it as, you know, when you're operating from, you already know you've got this certain size piece of pie that you can choose from. You don't get the whole pot. You've got like a certain size of the piece of pie that's going to be accessible to you. And, you know, a rational response to that is to say, well, I'm not other people who are entitled to this little tiny slice of pie that I've just gotten access to. I don't want to give them any of it. So I think that's, you know, it's rational. I think when you talk about, you know, the the left wing being anti-family, I mean, it's interesting because last summer we had the family tax credit 
And what did we get it for? Like six months, right? Mm -hmm. But that was a hugely important piece of legislation for families with young children. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, I think that was a piece where the left wing could have sort of said, like, this is what we're really going to get behind and really talked about why this is important, why families are important. So I think sometimes there's there's a rhetoric issue. I think, um, you know, my hope is that some of the younger Democrats coming up are having a little bit easier time articulating this. You know, some people who've been in political power for a long time, it's very easy to get very isolated from the average American life. And our politicians are held accountable to their fundraiser, to their donors, not to their voters. Yeah. Um, you know, you see the consequences of that. I mean, we see that in the Democratic Party, where we yeah. where we we have our set of donors, and they run the party, and the GOP yeah. has their set of donors. Yeah. And I'm not sure sometimes one side. I mean, I well, let, let's put it this way. I mean, I, I'm a constitutionalist. I'm a, I want my democracy. I, if, if Trump had been a, a Democrat and, you know, spouted all the ugly hate he had done, I would have voted for someone in the GOP, even though I'm a Democrat, because I, number one, I want to keep my constitution. I want to keep my democracy and I'll vote for what's best for this country in that sense of, of freedom. And I don't know who it was. Maybe it was Obama, but, but someone said, you know, every four years we elect somebody who's it's, this is a baton race of a young democracy where, uh, you know, you may, this person may not be the best for this country, and you hear a lot of millennials and Gen X whining about that crap. Oh, I don't like this person perfectly. Even in the Democratic Party, people are like, I'm not voting for Hillary because he's it's not Bernie, you know. And you're like, hey, man, you got to vote. You got to vote for who's going to be able to carry that baton the best for the next four to eight years. And 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 and, and move forward this this young democracy, this republic that that can fail at any time, especially in its, in, in its youth. You know, we, a lot of people don't realize how, how, how youthful this is, but you bring up some good points. And I think it goes back to what we talked about earlier with money, where, you, you know, you talked about how if people don't have enough then they're like, well, I finally got access to this piece of pie, so I'm not going to share it. You know, there used to be this time in this, in this, in this country where, you know, we, we kind of shared a little bit more, cared about each other a little bit more. And we've definitely moving away from that, probably because of, you know, trickle down economics and everybody living on, you know, crackers and Ritz crackers. You know, everyone's fighting over scraps, basically. Yeah. And you're able to see, you know, I think social media and as a journalist, too, I think the conglomeration of mass media, the death of local newspapers, all, had, all this has combined to an atmosphere of distrust, an mm -hmm. atmosphere of envy and an atmosphere of media members are increasingly isolated from those they cover. Yeah. And you're right. The The, the Democrat Party has always had trouble with messaging. The, the interesting thing about Donald Trump was the language he uses. And if you watch videos on YouTube about how simplistic his language is and how basic it is and how it, it preys on a victimhood sort of mentality. That's another thing that we've had in this country for the last 60 years, three generations. This whole victimhood emotionalism has kind of infected the country. And more and more, I mean, you saw it with the, with the participation trophy kids. You know, the victimhood has kind of risen and probably out of that financial sort of strife. So this has been a really interesting discussion. Anything more we want to touch out or tease out on the update for your book and what's coming out? Yeah, I mean, I like I said, it's it's the three things since 2019 that I think have 
dramatically shifted the conversation around Christian nationalism in this country and political extremism, which is COVID, the murder of George Floyd, and the January 6th insurrection. And you cannot understand these movements without understanding this theological idolatry of many people who call themselves Christians in this country to wealth and power. Mm -hmm. Um, So I'm examining that and I'm, you know, living it as a parish pastor in rural America while I live in the city of Minneapolis. So I, Mm I have an interesting perch from which to experience all of this and I'm grateful for it. And also, you know, it's a challenge. Definitely. Most definitely. Well, I encourage people to read the book, check it out. The one thing man can learn, the one thing man can learn from his history is that man never learns from his history and thereby we go round and round. So let's stop doing that and learn from history because the, like you mentioned earlier, the same dark, the same dark path that the previous things were on Musa, Hitler, Duterte. I'm trying to think of the Chilean president for so long that disappeared so many, all those guys rose to power through right wing nationalism. And we, <laughs> yeah, we need to, we need to stop the march and it just gets scary and scary. I mean, you, you if you saw CPAC and recently last week, I think it was just, just crazy. And they're, they're, they're just outright saying it right now, white kiss and nationalists. So anyway, thank you for being on, <laughs> Def, thank you for being on the show. We really appreciate it. Yes. Thank you. And think, give us your dot com so people can find you on the interwebs, please. Yeah, Angela Denker, D-E-N-K-E-R.com, and Red State Christians available anywhere books are sold. There you go. There you go. Order it up, folks, wherever fine books are sold. To stay on this alley, we have bookstores as well. Red State Christians, understand the voters who elected Donald Trump. And uh, go be sure to all our places on the interwebs, youtube.com, for it says Chris Voss, goodreads.com, for it says Chris Voss, other groups on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, here anywhere those crazy kids are playing except for snapchat for the most obvious reasons we're not sending you pictures of the chris Voss show thanks for tuning in be good to each other stay safe and we'll see you guys next time